Hello and welcome back, everybody. My name's Nick Hammond, and you're listening to Around the World in 80 Cigars. Well, it's been a while, folks, hasn't it? <laughs> a lot of water under that bridge between now and then. It's Nick Hammond. I'm back. I thank you for being so patient with me. I know I haven't updated you audibly for some time, but uh, post-lockdown shenanigans, I've been getting back on the horse and getting stuff moving. So the podcast has had to take a back seat, but I wanted to let you guys know, because I know there's so many of you out there that are still downloading episodes, um, obviously not in the numbers that you were when they were regular pods going out but it's been amazing to me to log back in and have a look at the numbers and see that you know every month hundreds and hundreds of people from around the world are still looking back at some of the early stuff i know from speaking to people I've, i meet at events and things that some of you listen to you know old episodes again it's like putting on a pair of comfortable slippers isn't it um and that's lovely to know because i do that myself i listen to old pods that i've you sort of enjoyed in the past and when i got nothing better to listen to. I think, you know what, I'd like to hear that again. And you always pick up something new. So we're back. And the reason we're back is because really and truly the real reason I've got some great audio for you coming and I'll talk to you about that in a moment. But the real reason I'm back because I've got some news for you and hopefully some news that will have you hopping and skipping in the aisles. Around the world in 80 cigars is coming back. I am announcing Today, the launch of Around the World in 80 Cigars there and back again. Now, this is a brand new, all singing, all dancing, freshly baked sequel to my best-selling travelogue, which was published in 2019. Now, those of you who've read the book will understand it, will know what we're talking about. Uh, you won't need me to go on, but uh, it's a book of stories from some of the strange, wonderful, weird and wacky trips and experiences I've done over the years, 25, 30 years as a roving reporter all over the world. Um, always somewhere along the line, there's a bloody good cigar in there, which is why I think it appeals to cigar people. We're interesting and interested people generally. We want to learn about new things. We want to see interesting things, meet people. Um, and then, you know, the, the world's an amazing place and there's interesting people doing amazing things in it. And that's what really keeps me going and fires my enthusiasm, to be honest. So the launch of the new book, well, we're going to hopefully publish towards the end of 2023. It is packed with fantastic new stories from all over the world. And as always, there's a fair smattering of cigars in there. <laughs> now, this time around, I need your help. I'm determined that I'm not just going to cut a deal with the publisher and you know, get a small proportion of royalties for the book. I've worked so hard um, getting the first book out, building an audience, you know, doing all the stuff that you have to do just to get out there and talk to people. And I really feel that enough of you loved the book and want a new one, that we're in a position to go it alone and really try and make this something a bit special. I am shortly going to be launching a crowdfunding campaign via Indiegogo, to help me pay for the design, production and the print of the new book. Now, that doesn't take into account any of my time in actually going, doing these things and learning what I've learned over the last 30 years or even the time to write the book. This is just purely the mechanics of getting a, a book published. Um, and 
the cost of doing that, along with everything else in the world, it seems, has obviously gone through the roof in recent years. So I would like to ask you to help me to get this one on the shelves. I need to raise in excess of £30,000 to do that, to pay for an illustrator, to pay for designers, to pay for printers, to pay for editors and typesetters, um, you know, and, and all the stuff that goes into printing a great book and getting it actually out to the public. So in order to do that, we have this crowdfunding campaign and I've worked out some really amazing rewards that I think you're going to like at whatever level you want to pitch in. Um, there's some really exciting stuff on there. There's some fun stuff. There's some wacky stuff. And if you really want to go on a big blowout, there's some amazing things uh, uh, that are going to be up there as backer rewards. So the first thing I want you to do is to visit www.aroundtheworldin80cigars.com. And that's 80, the numerals, 80, aroundtheworldin80cigars.com. Do that, please. It's my landing page. It tells you what I'm doing and it gives you the opportunity to subscribe so that I can let you know what's happening and when. This is the important first step, please. Um, you know, as I say, times are hard. It, uh, independent journalism, particularly in this sort of niche sphere, is, is not easy. And, and I've put out hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of hours of content over the last couple of years of free content to try and keep everyone going and entertained and informed about the world that we love. You know, we've, we've had the podcasts, um, many, many hours of podcasts, uh, Zoom tastings, I've done online events, ticketed events, YouTube videos with Lawrence uh, Davis from Salter. We do Instagram live shows every Tuesday night and so on and so on. So what I really need now is to get some support behind me to get this book on the shelves and hopefully uh, at the same time, allow me to give some help to some underprivileged children in Nicaragua, which... Um, if any of you have read the book and know me, is, is an important thing for me. I feel it's important to give back in everything that you do. And um, and I feel very strongly about that country and how it needs a leg up and the people there, you know, we can help them, you know, with not vast amounts of money. And, I'm, you know, you'll read all about it as we as we sort of release details about the campaign. But I'm hoping to be able to fund scholarships, entire scholarships, meaning clothes and food and outings and books and and teaching for some Nicaraguan school children who otherwise face a very bleak start in life. And I think that's just an incredible thing to be able to do. And you can be part of that with me. Anyway, that's what I wanted to tell you. Exciting news. I'm nervous. I'm not sure if it's going to work. I'm excited. I'm hopeful. And I'm grateful that at least I have this opportunity to to be brave and express myself and reach out to people, not in a way that, you know, seems like just give me your money. I hope that you think I've contributed to this place that we all love to be in. And I want to continue to do that in as many ways as I can. And I ask you with a sort of open heart that if you value the work that I do, and some of the things that I'd like to call cigar literature, as opposed to just blogging about taste you get when you smoke a cigar and things like that, you know, really in-depth, different 
pieces about this amazing and intricate world, if you value that, then I would ask you kindly to log in, register your name and see if there's anything that ticks, tickles your fancy in terms of um, in levels of backing and see if we can reach that uh, total. And if we do reach it and we do smash it, then, you know, I've got some real great ideas about how much more we can do to support various people and, and give you some even greater rewards. So in the meantime, after that little bit of news, I wanted to let you know, and I've wanted to give you a little uh, something back in return. I've been trawling through my gander bag of goodies, trying to work out all this stuff that's going on and how we're going to uh, release things. And we're going to be updating um, backers with videos from my travels and with audio stuff and all the interesting things I've been up to. And believe me, I've been up to some interesting stuff. Uh, here is a lovely little piece of audio that I recorded last year when I was in northern Kenya. Um, and it's a story of a trip that will feature heavily uh, in the new book. I was with Ed Hoff, who runs uh, the, uh, the Cigar... Oh, dear, oh, dear. I haven't put my teeth in this morning. He runs... Ed Hoff runs the Safari series. And you can find out more about Ed and his uh, family and his amazing work at the thesafariseries.com. But I was spending the time with Ed getting out into the bush, into the middle of nowhere with a very few mod cons and experiencing life in pristine African bush like maybe we used to do. Um, it's an incredible place. I had just an astounding time and I did some extraordinary things, which you'll read about if you buy a copy of the new book. And actually, if you back us, you will get an exclusive backer-only edition, which won't be available in the shops, by the way. Um, so one night I sat down with uh, Ed. We sat around the campfire. And we had a chinwag about so many different things. Um, it was one of those great cigar conversations, really, that meandered over a massive amount of things. But also what, what was interesting on listening back was that uh, Ed is a relatively new cigar smoker and he was asking me about stuff about cigars that you wonder when you start. And I would think I was able to be relatively erudite really and explain cigars and how they stand in modern society and how they came to be like they are and how some of them have their different properties. And, um, and we moved on through that to, to various different topics. So without further ado, let me put you on to this little bit of audio and just take a moment to settle back with your cigar if you have one or your drink and just imagine you are in the middle of nowhere approximately 50,000 acres there probably isn't another person for 20 miles at least there are more stars in the sky than you could ever hope to imagine every now and then you hear a strange noise like an elephant in the background or some cloven hoofed beast charging past there's a campfire with sparks dancing up into the night and there's two blokes sitting down with a cold beer and a smoke to have a chat in the bag of, in their bag of goodies the wonderful salter bag of goodies so, so what's what's salter Sauter. 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 Well, originally it was a chap called Desmond Sauter. Yep. Lovely old boy. Um, and he opened a little tobacconist in London. 
back in the 50s, I think. And then in the he, he, he made a lot, like a little tiny kiosk. And then he was very astute and saw that the cigar thing and the upmarket cigar thing was taking off and people really loved a great cigar. And whilst there was still a, quite a lot of hardcore people that were average Joes that didn't pipe smoke or woodbine smoke or whatever, they liked a little cigar. So he catered for both ends and he moved into a store in Mount Street, which is just opposite the Connaught Hotel. Yeah. Probably the most expensive street in Mayfair. Um, and funny enough, Churchill used to live right above it in the flat above. Um, <laughs> so he had his customers in yeah, the right place. Yeah, absolutely. He was in exactly the right place. And Desmond opened the first walk-in humidor in the UK, which is still there, actually. It's that same humidor is still in use today. And a walk-in humidor is just basically a room designed um, and kitted out so that it has a manageable humidity and temperature level which is how you need to keep good hand roll cigars how did he manage that in the 50s any ideas i, d- I don't uh, i don't personally know the answer to that i can easily find it out i think he just had a unit he used to have like a humidifying unit oh, really? and you what you do is you you make all the shelves and the partitions and boxes and display out of spanish cedar which is what cigar boxes are made of to this day and when you have um you know that lovely smell, cigar smell when you open a box it is about the cigars but the cedar absorbs that essence of cigar so when when you walk into a walk-in um fermador, humidor humidor yeah um it's kind of like when a 16-year-old girl walks onto the ground floor of Debenhams, you get to smell all the things you want. <laughs> and I tell you what, the beauty of it, another one of the beauties of cigar smoking is that that when you walk into that room, it's just like the first time you did it. it makes your heart go. Lovely. When you love cigars, that smell is intoxicating. And uh, and the cedar absorbs that, and it's also really good at retaining moisture, that particular cedar, so that's why they use it. Because uh, uh, the, the issue with cigars is them drying out mm. or getting too wet. Okay. Um, and so, you know, long story short, most hand roll cigars back in the day were Cuban, and Cuba has a, you know, relative humidity of average of about 70 degrees and a temperature of about 70 degrees. And that is what the sort of baseline is. And if you want to sort of store cigars for long term aging, it's recommended that you lower those so it's at a lower temperature and a lower humidity because they then age slower but better um, and the thinking is you know if it is for consumption now um, then a lot of people prefer it to be slightly higher but it's all about personal preference. So do you have a humidor at your house? Yeah several once you it's one of those things once you get into it it's like mm. you buy a wine cabinet or something and then you quickly fill it and think shit I wish I'd got a bigger <laughs> one <laughs> and you hide them from your wife all over the house so now I have... It's like me and my motorbikes. Exactly. Where did that come from? Oh, I've had that ages, yeah. I got in a lot of trouble once where um, <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd basically been refusing to put curtains all around our house. You know, a lot of houses in Kenya, because it's nice and open and good weather, they have, they have lots of windows. And it turned out to put curtains in all of these windows at this new house was very expensive. So I told my wife, There's, we've got no money. We've got no money to put curtains in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next day I bought a motorbike and I was about to tell her that I'd bought myself this really good deal on this motorbike uh, when she started talking about the curtain issue and I thought this is not going to go down ah, well. Yeah. So for six weeks I hid a motorbike in the bushes in the garden. 
And one day she found it. No. And um, what did I, she say? Did she know straight away? Well, she made me buy her some curtains. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. And it, and it's quite funny. There's lots of cigar memes where people go, you know, your face when the postman comes with cigars and your wife answers the door and stuff like this. Yeah, really. <laughs> We're all the same. But um, yeah, so I've got um, I've got a big cabinet in my office, like you know, one of those sort of standalone mm. cabinets that you might see in a shop. Mm. And then I've got a little fridge electronic one. And then I've got a couple of desktops, and then I've got a, I've got I've got a blanket box in the porch, which you know. What's a blanket box? Basically, like um, what do they used to call them? Um, used to have at the end of the bed, ottoman. Oh right, yeah. And so, it. and but it's got a really nicely tight. You've fit. got an ottoman at the end of your bed, filled full of cigars. It's not at the end of the bed, unfortunately. <laughs> it is in the porch, but um, but I discovered it, and it's only a pine thing, but it had a really close fitting lid which is the key you need to be able to keep that moisture oh, and of really? course it stores a lot of boxes and it costs a fraction of some humidor that somebody's sold you because it's a humidor and is really it's just smart, the same sort yeah. of thing so yeah you get you get into it Let's, now i've picked you out a cigar you had a cuban yesterday okay uh on a yeah that's going and i've picked you out um, an alec bradley prensado okay so this is a nicaraguan cigar Right. So this is what we would term as a New World cigar as opposed to a Havana or a Cuban cigar. Yeah. So I want you to try that and see the differences and see how it tastes on the palate. Traditionally, Nicaraguan cigars are known for being a bit more bolder, a bit punchier, a bit more in your face. Um, that's changed a bit in recent years. They've increased massively the production, the investment, the seeds the way they grow them, the way they store them, where they ferment. So was that flavour because of the tobacco that they have or is that because that was their their unique taste? Yeah, pretty much the latter. Okay. I mean, cigars in Honduras, Nicaragua, that part of the world, all of which is pretty much in a little yeah. belt that girdles the planet where the great cigar tobacco grows. And as I said to you earlier, we're talking about um, black tobacco. Mm. The, the, the start of the industry in the New World was pretty much really given a rocket fuel when Castro took over in Cuba and nationalised everything. So you had these really famous old factories and brands like Romeo and Julieta, Bolivar, Punch and all the others were suddenly state-owned and the families that owned them were told to do one. Um, some of them stayed and fought and, and still worked and some of really? them said, we're off, you know, we're not sticking for this. and that, a lot of them moved all over the world, lots into Miami, which is only 90 miles north, of course. Um, and and they took Cuban seed with them, smuggled it out. Really? And when we talk tobacco seeds, it's about the size of a grain of coffee. One so so was this the beginning of New World cigars? Pretty much. There was always... Really? There was always tobacco in the New World, you know, Columbus and all of that. It's believed it started you know, way back thousands of years ago in the sort of Mayan thing as a ritual, as a spiritual thing. And it still is in many, many parts of the world. Mm. You know, tobacco leaves are used to ward off evil spirits um, and, and, you know, shaman and, and people will use a cigar, light a cigar, blow smoke over the recipient. And it's supposed to be, that's part of the reason there's such a, this allure, this mystical spiritual side to it. Because if you want to get really deep into it, you know, the use of smoke and fire is pretty much, you know, elemental to human existence, isn't it? 
you and I sat in a cave earlier on today. Absolutely. Where people have been smoking, mm. making fires, and generally looking into the distance and shooting the breeze, much like you and I are, yep. for 2,700 years. Yeah, that's a good point. This amazing cave, which was on a huge bit of overhanging rock, about, I don't know, 200 metres up, maybe not that high. From where we were, yeah, I mean, in I mean, terms I mean, of actual sea level, it's very high, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, about 2,200 metres up, looking over a giant view. But my point for bringing that up yeah. was, not, was, was that I, f uh, I think both of us see the value in, in going through rituals and yeah. being in places and doing things that people who've been before us have done. Yeah. something very powerful about that. So I, I can understand the, the allure of, a, of tobacco, yeah. of smoke. And, yeah. I mean, is there, is there a milestone... Uh, where someone says this is when the first cigar was made. Is yeah, there's various... Obviously, these things are very hard to pin down, but cigars were not big part in um, British life until the Spanish Wars, when we went over and a lot of our soldiers were involved. Um, uh, and up to then, it was pretty much clay pipes and stuff. Mm. And then they came back, and, and in London particularly, they started opening these cigar divans, these lounges, where you could go and get really good coffee, read the papers, and they had these cigars that nobody knew much about, the soldiers were bringing back, and they began to take over. Uh, and for a while, it was a sort of heyday, golden period, where cigars were the absolute de rigueur, and it was the really trendy, cool thing to do. You go to your cigar divan, and you'd sit there and have tea or coffee. Really good coffee was being imported by then, and... Uh, and sort of shoot the breeze and, and that whole camaraderie, gentlemanly conduct, way of doing business thing, which still exists to this day, um, really started then. And it was, you know, big elsewhere in the world. And it still is, grows and evolves as everything does. And so, yeah, so the, the, the Nicaraguan seed was taken to Honduras and Nicaragua. They experimented in these regions that the, the expats from Cuba felt was very similar topography-wise and soil-wise to what they knew in Cuba, and they experimented and found, lo and behold, this tobacco, you know, took off and grew beautifully in these little fertile, sheltered valleys. And so you have these regions, just like you would have in Cuba, where really good tobacco grows. And in Cuba you have three or four absolute, like, um, Loire Valley-type spots, where the creme de la creme of, of Cuban cigar tobacco is grown and there's lots of other little regions where the the filler which uh, you know, I don't want to teach a grandmother to suck eggs but a cigar <laughs> cigar is um is filler is the bit in the middle the, the majority of the cigar yep. is filler you have a binder then it wraps that into a rough cigar shape and again that can often be another leaf from another country or oh, really? a slightly different flavor and then you have the wrapper which is the outer leaf that you see and again that in Cuban cigars is, is grown mainly, mainly for its looks and for presentation. doesn't add a huge amount of flavour. But in uh, New World cigars, it's a big part of the flavour. They tend to be more pr pronounced. Really? Yeah. I mean, do you, um, if you're a Cuban and a die-hard mm. cigar connoisseur, would you smoke a New World cigar? Or is there... It's a good question. Until recently, and I mean the last 10, 15 years... You know, it was massively one-sided, and, and it still is one-sided in London and places, but more and more people are moving to New World cigars to try them. They're, they're better value, they're cheaper, 
the prosecco of the uh, yeah of the cigar world. Yeah, and uh, but they are still great cigars. Yeah, and there's also an issue now that Cuba is having a massive issue economically, socially, COVID, everything, um, and because there is an embargo from the US, which is the biggest cigar market in the world. Yep, they can't get any Cuban cigars legally in America. So. Um, and the, at the moment, there's a massive shortage of Cuban cigars for a number of reasons. And that, again, is giving a leg up to the New Worlds who, are, who are, are able to ride out the storm a little better and have more funds behind them from America and other places. Mm. Anyway, so let, without further ado, I'd like you to try this. Will there be a quiz on this at the end? Yes, I will be testing you. Lovely band. So Alec Bradley, um, relatively new company on the scene, but, uh, started by a chap called Alan Rubin. Um, and he gets his cigars made in Nicaragua and Alec and Bradley are his sons and they are now both involved in the business. When, right. You know, back in the day, they were little boys and he named it sweetly after them and now they make their own cigars. It's quite nice. Um, so, yeah, that's the Alec Bradley Prensado, which was an award-winning cigar back when it came out in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, so clip and try that at your leisure um, while we chat. All right. Hmm. And we also have a cold beer to aid our discussion, which helps. So yeah, let's talk about that cave art briefly because we mentioned it. Yeah, this amazing pla place right on top that looks over the most ridiculous view, which stretches as far as the eye can see in every direction. And it is this little cave full of cave art from um, 2,700 years BC. It's been carbon dated. And people used to go up there. Um, the rocks are absolutely shiny and smooth because people used to put their animal skins to sit on. And you can literally see the animal fats that have been sort of... It's almost glass-like, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a really special place. One, as we discussed, because almost anywhere else in the world it would, it would be behind the glass wall and you would pay... Totally. You know eight euros or something and climb up some stairs have a look and come back down but mm. we're lucky enough here that i mean i've i've slept in that cave and woken up with you know these ancient cave paintings over my over my head and be able to sit up and see just you know, this huge view all the way to the horizon and it's very it's special for more than one reason mm. one it's special because it's very ancient but it's special to be able to sit there knowing that Thousands of people have sat there before you and, and, and countless generations and pondered life. Yeah, um, and they will have cooked up there, butchered up there, cooked meat up there, um, stayed up there during inclement weather, whatever it might be. And it, for it, for us to be able to scramble up this rock and it looks like any other rock till you get up to it, as you say, and just go in and there's bones on the floor. There's the ceiling of of the cave is absolutely black with fire smoke. And on the walls are these amazing squirrels and squiggles and symbols in white. What would it have been? What would the pigment have been? Well, we can use all sorts. Is it calcium? Uh, well, it's, it's uh, depending like on what cattle it is. Yeah. They could make bits of bone, but but really, it's um, it's the fat. Is so it? So particularly the the subcutaneous fat that you find around organs. Yeah. That kind of yellow fat. If yeah, you've ever yeah. seen it, they yeah. would take that from there eat a, a goat, sit up there before their big journey across the, the plains and through the wilderness and 
they would you know have one of their goats or even a cow if it was a big group yeah and then they would leave their mark the mark of their tribe or of their family or of their clans paint them on on the ceiling well, would, they, would they render the fat or would literally just use it as a as a grease sort of thing I suppose you don't know the answer to that. Yeah, well, yeah you're pushing me here. But, um, <laughs> Weren't you there at the time? Yeah, they have, um, I mean, I showed you as well, the ones that you could see really clearly now are six to nine hundred years old. You've also got, in just kind of, just if you look carefully, these red smudges. Yeah. And that's from the Takana people who actually live hours north of here, but they would come down here during drought years. Is that T U R K A N N A? T U R K-A-N-A, yeah, yeah whatever yeah, you say. Yeah, I, I know, yeah. <laughs> and they um, they would use blood to get a red pigment in, uh-huh. and, it, and it's last. Um, yeah, the cow and buffalo blood do really well for staining. Really? Mm. Huh. Anyway, that's just part of the ridiculous smorgasbord of history and civilization and wildlife and ecology and everything else that makes up this... 80,000 acres of the conservancy? Yeah, well, the, the under one ownership is 80,000 acres, but right. the ecosystem itself is maybe five or six times that. Yeah. Sure. And it, it, yeah, and it brings me around to talk to you about, you know, the whole essence of you being here. And I suppose that the obvious elephant in the room question is, and I, and I approach this from the point of knowing your perspective and what you're trying to do, but, you know, if uh, and hopefully when this goes out, we'll you can put it on your social media and we'll get listeners from Kenya and stuff, you know, but, but if someone coming along, oh, no, you know, yet another privileged white bloke talking about his safari camp. And I know that you feel very strongly <laughs> about that and what that means and how you're trying to change it. So, yeah, well, I think a part of our reason for being here is that for a long time, I mean, we could well, I could talk about colonial history and the Europeans' impact on Africa till the cows come home, literally. Because yeah. <laughs> as well as a conservancy, it's a cattle ranch. Um, and there's good and bad, and we could discuss that, like I said, in, in, from, until sunrise tomorrow. But <laughs> a real passion of mine is, I, I'm in a privileged position because I'm a educated yeah. European who's come out here and, and you get a leg up from that. Of course you, you do. That, and you do. Um, and I'm where I am, not all because of that, but, you know, it helps. Yeah. But I'm really passionate that if we're going to look after these spaces, they have to be for everyone and they have to belong to everyone, even if that's just emotionally. Um, so a big thing for me is getting um, Kenyans, local Kenyans, yeah, um, black Kenyans, to come, to come and see what I think is really belongs to them. Yeah. Maybe not on paper, always. You know, this, this property is owned by a huge wildlife trust and in trust of the Kenyan people. Um, but I don't think a lot of them know that they... It's an easy thing to say and be trite about, oh, we're keeping it for the Kenyan people. But if you never let the Kenyan people in to see it, then it's not yeah. for them, is it? If it's $1,000 per person per night, it's not for the Kenyan people. No. Because, you know, the average wage here is $300 a month across the country. Is it? And that's, you know, that's including Nairobi. If you come up to places like this, where now we're in the middle of nowhere... The average wage is, is probably way below a hundred dollars a month. Seriously. So you know, how do we create something? Can they? My, my camp is still a real treat. I mean, people can't afford it and that, but we, we have a structure that means when you come to stay with us, percentage of your money goes to conservation. A percentage of your money goes to paying, you know, staff salaries, and and the rest of it goes to getting people here who couldn't come. Um, 
Attenborough says a great thing, which I kind of, if I like tattoos, I might have got tattooed to myself, but I won't, <laughs> <laughs> would be that people will only protect what they care about. Yeah. And they're only going to care about what they've experienced. So if these huge world spaces only belong to the elite, to the exclusive, then they, they won't survive a long time. I agree. And I think that a lot of what you mean and a lot of what applies to life and and travel and understanding each other and being tolerant of each other comes to one word, which is empathy. Mm. If you come here, then you empathise, don't you? Which is why it is special, why the people need to see it, why we need to look after Kenyans who have had a shit deal over the years and, and all of those things. Empathy is a big deal in my book. And and you're right, you know, unless you know something about something personally and you have a stake in it, a skin in the game, as they say, mm. you, you, do, you don't care about it as much as you do the stuff on your doorstep. Um, well, let's talk about the, the Kenyans. And I mean, you employ 22 full-time st- staff, all Kenyan people. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's a, a local Kenyan, most of them from the communities that surround this property not all um how do you go about finding them <laughs> well or do they find you sometimes they find us and i'm always willing to give people a shot uh, a good example is elijah who's been taking you on safari yeah one of our guides started off as our night watchman and um, we were looking as we were expanding we were looking for a new guide we interviewed people you know they didn't have the right fit and he said listen why don't you give me a shot what was he doing prior he, he was the night watchman, so oh, I he, see, right. he was keeping the fire going and walking up and down. And yeah, yeah, like um, uh, Patrick. Patrick does now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, checking lions aren't sleeping outside people's tents, that kind of thing. Keeping the fire going, keeping the buffaloes away. And I said, well, you know, how much do you know about this stuff? And it turns out a an lot. An awful lot. <laughs> an awful lot. Uh, you know, he needed teaching and driving. But he's also because he's not being formally trained, but he's, he's a person whose family for generations and generations have lived on this landscape. Yeah. His knowledge is unbeatable, actually. Um, yeah, so sometimes they come to us. And there's a few of the kitchen staff kind of turned up at our gate and sat there. Really? Said, can I have a job? And I said, there wasn't one. And the next day they're there, can I have a job? Wow. I said, no. A month later they came back, can I have a job? And I said, well, actually, all right, then you can help out with this. Um, and see how you go yeah it's never as everyone knows it's never that easy no we've had people come and had people go but what matters to me is is a shared vision you can teach someone to make beds you can teach someone to drive a car you can probably even teach people like you and me how to cook a quiche if you really try yeah um, and you could teach us how to track to a rudimentary degree but never to the level that these people but what you can't teach is a passion for the natural world no and well that's something i think we all share is that everyone who's here whether they're serving you a cold beer or they're making your beds driving the cars or or guiding you on safari all of us want to inspire people which is very easy to do here because of how beautiful it is but we want people to go home and think how can i better look after our planet really and how can i protect what's remaining of our wild spaces um basically anyone who has that attitude will succeed i think so i'm you know my um that's my that's my hr philosophy get people who believe in your vision and the rest kind of can come second yeah and obviously you look after them and all the rest of it who was the, your first star it's a, it's a good anyone question anyone that's still with you yeah a few of the guys yeah. have been here stella who's our chef oh really um has been here since since the very beginning 
Um, a couple of the girls who do the rooms and help in the kitchen have been here from the beginning. Um, yeah. And I suppose the beauty of employing local people is, as you say, they don't come from Nairobi, you know, that they are people who've brought, been brought up in this environment and the animals in it and they know how to deal with them as a matter of, you know, getting yeah. up in the morning sort of. Well, thing. it's an interesting landscape because on, on the southern boundary of this property you have small-scale agriculturalists who weren't, also weren't there before the you know, colonial powers came and that used to be Maasai land as well. What, where there are poly, poly tunnels and things now? Yeah, yeah, exactly, it's yeah. where the farms are. So that's a real mix of, not quite urban, but at least modern Kenya. And this huge property here is, is the boundary between what used to be called the um, NFD, the Northern Frontier District, hmm. which until about 10 years ago, if you drove past this property, you had to sign a book, basically checking out of the country and... What they did, they didn't have, a, they would sort of wash their hands of the rest of the... The police would say good luck, basically. Really? And this was the wild areas of nomadic people and help cattle you rustlers. And, um, but it wasn't like that. Well, no, it was. It was like that. Was it? But um, more, more because of the reach of the government as opposed to actually the, the danger. I mean, lots of my staff are from those areas and it's still like that. Right. But certainly it's, it's, it's a wild place full of cultures that are very different to what we... We know, and that's what makes it interesting employing people here because we've got people from both sides. Yeah. I mean, and I want to talk to James at some stage because I, I think he's a fascinating character. So he's obviously has massive knowledge of being here, looking after the cattle for his family and, and protecting them from the animals that also share the space. But he's obviously also dedicated a lot of his time to learning. You know, he, you and he have this great rivalry of birds and stuff and you get the book out and argue about some species and, and a lot of that I'd imagine he's had to learn as opposed to know the particular birds details other than being able to just sort of recognize it generally and because he's also a teacher isn't he yeah I mean it, your job as a guide is to is to be a teacher yeah. you know, to to inform but to also oh we've had a, a dusky turtle dove just flew right between us yeah like a little rocket um so, yeah, his job is, of course, to tell people about what's going on here, but also to kind of inspire people and to, to educate them in a way that interests them. James has done an amazing job because what he's been able to do, he's, he's seen that using the natural wealth that's around him, his family, his community, the areas he, he grew up in, which are very, very poor, and in these kind of areas where people don't own land, it's giant nomadic um, areas where people are rustling cattle and fighting off lions. And do they still have inter-tribal factions and rivalry on yeah, yeah, war and all that stuff? One hundred, not really war, but it's... it's They'll it's, have spats and... Yeah, well, not even. It, it's, it's, it's based around cattle mainly. Is it? Cattle is what people's wealth has always been. And yeah. It's always been measured by for thousands of years. Um, so people still pop across and steal a hundred cattle and try and march them back. And the, the difference is these days, rather than spears... You might be a couple of guns going off. Really, but this is this might kind of sound scary to people, but uh, I've got a good story for that. <laughs> uh, during the lockdown, my wife and I and some of our friends were camping on a dry riverbed in the very north of the property, and we had a, a little girl at home. My wife decided that actually camping was not for her. She needed to get home and see the baby. Right. So about ten thirty at night, she set off in our Land Rover in the pitch black across this big landscape. And eventually called me and said, listen, I've got home fine. 
And the next morning, 7am, I had a phone call from the head of security, who's a pretty kind of infamous character. Really? A phone call from him. was like being in, invited to the head teacher's office. You know you've done, you know you've done something wrong. Yeah. So I was racking my brain to what I'd screwed up. Yeah. I turned up and got a serious bollocking because I'd driven my Land Rover the night before with music blaring through the middle of a gunfight between two rival tribes fighting over cattle. And of course, this wasn't me, it was my wife. And she was, she was oblivious. She, was, well, she had the music on full volume, was singing away, no. drove straight for a gunfight and um, for cattle. But the guys who were in the gunfight apparently said, whoa, 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 stop, stop, <laughs> everyone stop. She's not involved. You know, I have this kind of image of my wife driving her, yeah. driving her Land Rover, going, I'm walking on sunshine. <laughs> whoa. Go, okay, it, off we go again. Okay, she's gone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, so yeah. uh, so it, it's not how we see. So it's not a total disrespect for human life. It's just. No, it's not this kind of, like, it's not like a, a brutal war. No. or It's just people have been rustling cattle and nicking it off your neighbours and all of that for thousands of years and that continues as a way of life Did, what happens if you know <laughs> they shoot each other is there any police court that this doesn't exist no there's lo- I mean there's the police in Kenya I mean there's some improvement needed but they're sure. certainly here but once again up in those tribal lands no one's going to report it because it's their way of life right. no one's going to the police true because if a Sambu tribe takes you know breaks into a Maasai encampment steals 50 cows and someone gets shot in the leg you know they'll go to hospital and there's no one saying oh it was this bloke they you know because it's what they've been doing for thousands of years of it's, it's almost there's no real well of course there is a animosity but it's it's a totally different way of, of looking at these things um so i wouldn't compare it to to war or anything like that it's, right it's a tribal rival rivalry that's continuing the same way it has done for thousands of years absolutely fascinating and how anyone ever gets any semblance of control over such a vast place with so many different people doing different things is beyond me. But well, if you're having a gunfight and neither side report it to the police, yeah, and, and there's no one there to observe it or stop it, hundreds or, of miles from anyone, yeah, difficult to stop it. I yeah, guess. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, we digress, but yeah, <laughs> as we do. Oh, by the way, I've just lit, um, I'm, I'm having a Vigueros like you did, but this is the I think it's the I don't think it's the Entretiempos, I think it's the Tapados, which is, again, these names are just to, for different sizes of the same line. Because this one's a bit chunkier than the one yeah, I had last it, night. Yeah, it's not a little pointy one, it's a slightly longer, slightly fatter. So. Anyway, it's delicious. Um, how are you getting on with the Prensado? Prensado's going down very well, actually. I think as a either beginner and a non-cigar smoker, really, I'm slightly intimidated by how long it is. But... Um, yeah, at first they looked like ridiculously enormous things. But they're making good progress. Yeah. It's funny how quickly you move on to bigger cigars. And also, that has changed in the industry because back till relatively recently, slimmer, smaller cigars were all people smoked. Really? And that started to change because of the influence of America generally. Mm. They like really big, bigger the better, longer, fatter. And we studied it like we do, ended up copying that and doing similar stuff. So these days you know there once was a time when there was a certain type of cigar which was you know considered enormous and now it's relatively small so anyway what should we talk about next how when did you smoke your first cigar the uh, interviewer becomes the interviewee yeah ah <laughs> uh, well you need to read my book obviously 
Well, it's on the coffee table. Um, it's the wrong place, because I've told you already that it belongs inside the in loo. loo. A lot of people keep Or next to it, at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Not propping up the budgie cage. <laughs> a lot of people keep it in the loo, actually. It's quite interesting. Um, but to answer your question, I always had this really odd obsession with cigars. Right from when? Do you remember... You, I mean, I'm 15 years older than you, but did you... Did you ever partake of the A-Team on a Saturday afternoon, or was that after you...? No, no, I, I remember the A-Team. Right, OK. Just. So, the A-Team I loved, and Hannibal mm-hmm. used to go, I love it when a plan comes together and get a nice cigar out. I, used to, I just remember being fascinated with this thing. What, what is that? You know, everybody smokes cigarettes then. I thought, is this really cool thing, this guy? It's really weird, but I remember being really interested in this cigar and I remember I even dreamt about cigars when I was a kid isn't that odd <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, think, yes. I think that is yes unusual. is the answer so anyway there was obviously something latent there and um, went through school did the usual stupid smoking behind the bike sheds blah 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 but I remember quite distinctly when I was about 17 me and my best pal got a day off school to go and look around the uni we were, you know, and that was a good excuse to not go to school and to go on a road trip. Yeah. We jumped in his mum's mini metro and we headed off up the M1 up to Wolverhampton and we stopped for petrol and it was like this, like in the book I say, do you know in, it's not, I, I, it's actually, I put it wrong in the book, it's not Pulp Fiction, it's, what's the other one where they, they've got this briefcase that you never get to see what's in it, but every time people open it there's this golden glow. <laughs> Do you remember that? I can't think where that's from, but I can see the scene in my head. Yeah, yeah, it's got Tim Roth and his girlfriend, and they're in the diner, and they steal it. Anyway, um, and it was a bit like that moment. We went into this garage to pay for our petrol, and there was this like little humidor. And I remember, <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, look at that. And there was these tubes of cigars, and I just said to him, mate, we've got to get one of them. And they were like 10 quid or something, or, you know, for it, it was a big cigar in a silver tube and he goes what are you talking about come on we've got to try this so we a couple of idiots we buy these massive cigars in tube <laughs> and we get in the car music's blaring windows down off we go and then we realize well, how do, what do you do you, how do you get the end off and i'm pretty sure we must have bitten the end off tobacco in our mouth <laughs> then we fire this thing up eventually and we try to use the cigarette lighter in the car do you remember every car used to have those yeah, you always tested to see if they were on and burnt yourself Yeah, oh, it's, it's not hot. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, you pressed the end of this little, you know, filament to the end of your cigar, and then, of course, you kept it there, puff of smoke ever, and then you pull it out. All it did was just pull massive chunks of burning tobacco oh, out. Oh, no. So these then filled the car, flew onto the back seat, burnt little holes, all of this stuff going on it. It's his mum's mini-metro. Anyway, couple of absolute plonkers bowling down on the motorway. Two 17-year-olds turning up to their university smoking cigars. And we turned up kippered, absolutely kippered, <laughs> half sick, and the bloke just looked at us, oh, we're here for the open day. But that was the first proper cigar I had, and, and even though we both said, bloody hell, you know, we secretly thought it was super cool. You know, we were chewing cigars and looking in the mirror and seeing how cool we looked. And, and it grew from there. Every time we got together, we used to have a smoke, and I started to say, look, mate, I reckon we, this is supposed to be good, and we'd... And we, to this day, still do that, which really? is lovely. He lives in Seville now, and we don't see much of each other, but when we do, it's always a, we have a cigar and a chinway. And some marmalade, probably. <laughs> is, that, is that not what Seville's famous for? Yes. Seville oranges, yeah. Yeah. 
So that was the love for me, and it just sort of grew from there. And, and then I went through journalism, doing all the stuff I've told you about. And then I discovered that there weren't actually any proper writers writing about cigars. And you thought, I can flog something I here. can do that. <laughs> so I started to turn up to these events and sell a little something to a magazine. And then the cigar people thought, oh, he's quite a good contact. And they'd get in touch and say, why don't you come to this? And then I'd meet a manufacturer or somebody. And anyway, it ended up with me travelling to Dominican Republic and Nicaragua and Cuba and Mexico, these places, just to uh, learn about cigars. And it just became a massive part of my life, which most people really struggle to understand. But What's the worst cigar you've ever oof, smoked? I've had some shockers, but... You're not, you don't want to name them for liable reasons? There was one, <laughs> yeah, no, I couldn't, couldn't put a name to available cigars now, but there was one guy who... We used to go and watch football on Saturday and he ran the local working men's club. Real hilarious Irishman, hard as nails, and he goes, oh, I love a cigar. I, I, love, a, I love a cigar, Nick. I'll find one. And uh, he said, I've got, I'm going to, I think it was like Philippines or Indonesia. He said, oh, they've got something. And I thought, oh, God. And he came back with this thing that was the most ridiculous looking. It was like a chicken satay on a stick. So it... <laughs> So it, uh, it had like a like a tube, a plastic tube in it, sticking out two or three inches, and then sort of this big wedge of tobacco. So it looked like something you'd put on the barbecue. And he said, "Here, try it." And I had to smoke this thing with him. I never tasted anything more disgusting in my life. That's, that's probably the you know when you don't want to be smoking a cigar because you're going to be there for forty minutes. And, it, and, and you think this is grim. How can I get out of it? I can't say I don't like it. But fortunately, those moments. Now that you, you, when you learn a bit more about it, you're fewer and further mm. between. But, but it, um, it's definitely a part of the same ethos in my mind as the, as the things in life that make you stop and be aware and listen to your brain and shut off all the noise. And, and in a very similar way to fly fishing or being out in nature, as you know, you know, just sitting here and listening to the birds. And and the and the breeze, you know, a good excuse, yeah, to do nothing. Exactly, sailing, fishing, yeah, smoking a cigar, and it's sad, but also listening to cricket. Totally, and it's sad where you have to do it. But in today's world, you do need an excuse. Mm. But I think spiritually, I'm immensely better off for having that because it really aids my mental well-being. I think. Great. No, I think it's really important to find. I fish. I know we spoke. Yeah. We we've spoken a little bit about fishing, but I'm not a good fisherman. And Me neither. But I'm. I, I like doing it. Yeah. Because of that reason. Yeah. The same reason when I was growing up in Norfolk or on the Isle of Wight, taking a dinghy out to sea and watching where the wind is and just doing something is is there's something healthy about it. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I can I can see having done this with you last night and doing it now. That this can this can you know achieve that for people. Definitely, and it's part of that same brand. Of, a lot of it's to do with being outdoors, I think. You know, and and and, and something that comes from nature. You know, a good cigar is literally just dried leaves, no, mm. nothing added. Um, is a t- actually a different plant to the one that people put in cigarettes. Mm. Different, different species, and. Um, and you know that's chopped up into little bits and, and and added this that and the other to it and people inhale it and it it couldn't be more different you know 
probably gives you a good excuse as well if, you, if you're not a very good dancer. If you have a cigarette, you're out for five minutes at a wedding, you have to go down. This one, you can... Totally. <laughs> like two of those. Get your mate and you disappear for two hours. The missus is really pissed off, but you have a great time. <laughs> <laughs> I've, done, I've done it many, many times. My wife would tell you, but... Um... I think we should do it as an activity. You know, game drive in the morning, nice lunch, rest of the afternoon sitting on the rock with one of your cigar gins. Mm. Lovely gin and tonic sitting on the rock smoking a cigar. Definitely. I think, you know, we talked about that, about putting something together. I think people would be really up for that. Because cigar people on the whole are um, quite experimental, quite open to new things. They want to try stuff and they're all about the experiences for the reasons we've talked about. And mm. I think we could... I think we could get a little group together and come out here and show them this amazing place and, and do some really good cigar events as well. We could, you know, do some cigar dinners, themed dinners, where you pair the foods and the drinks with the cigars and so many things we could do. I think you're in for a consultant job here. Hey. <laughs> At last! Put you in the kitchen. Yeah. What kind of ice cream goes with a cigar? Vanilla. <laughs> There's what is, okay, what would be then? Okay, so we're talking about pairings. I had never thought about... Pairing Pairing. is huge in cigars these days. Yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah. So what, you know, people talk about your, you know, death row meal. Mm. So you've got three cigars and three courses. What are they? Great question. You can go in all sorts of ways, of course. And it depends on your personal preference. If you want to go real classic, full-on blowout, I would go Dom Perignon. Hope mid-80s, perhaps with a something got to be something light but flavorful not too big like an aged poor laranaga petit corona which is a little cuban cigar that's so big really mild mellow just delicious still got complexity but not too much and then you could go on to let's say you know if you're going to be killed tomorrow i reckon i'd say i want a really fabulous bit of steak okay um some of the best meat in the world, cooked rare, and and with that you'd have a, some claret what, what, or something. What cut are you having? I per, I love a sirloin personally. So okay, a Loldiga sirloin, oh, grass-fed on this ranch. Amazing. And 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 then I I would have some claret with it. Yeah. I love Bordeaux. And then for, to finish, you could ice cream is a really good idea. Cheese, I think, is a great companion to cigars. Cheese, um, chocolate, and then you get into the world of your... Separately, I hope. Yes. Yeah, although I, when I was in South Africa, I did have a steak with chilli chocolate sauce on it. Okay. It was amazing, but incredibly rich and, you know, decadent. And by the end, you're like, oh, my God. But it, it was like the most bilious meal you could ever have. Yeah, it was certainly up there. Although I did have a recent experience in a French restaurant, and we, I did this... Uh, have you heard, heard of the um, Presse du Canard? <laughs> so, no. so what it is, it's this really um, old way of French cooking in its richest and most, you know, horrendous form, but is just delicious. So what they do, they have these this big thing. It's a big made of silver. It's worth about hundred thousand pounds, and it's basically this big press. So you, it's, um, it's got a wheel on it that you turn and this plunger that goes down and it's got a spout that comes out. Okay. What they do is they part cook 
a particular type of duck, a chalon duck, which they strangle, so the blood is kept inside. This is all very French and... Well, you don't know what you've got in store for you tomorrow. There might be a bit of strangling and blood for you tomorrow. Radio. <laughs> Um, okay, good you got the experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they part cook it, part roast it, and then they chop it up um, into the quarters. No, they take the breast off, and then they take the, the, the wings and the leg off. And they put the breast aside, and they put the carcass with everything intact in this press. And then you are invited to turn the wheel, and it crunches it down, the bones crunch, the organs squish, and out trickles comes this really rich... <laughs> ruby dark jus, which is the juices of, of the bird, and they, ca- they catch it in a, in a little pan, and then it, a big knob of butter goes in, and they pour in the, a lovely, you know, big slug of brandy, and they flambe it. Who the hell came up with this? <laughs> Only the French. <laughs> it was yeah, one of the original much. dishes served in the Cop d'Argent, I think it was who created it, you know, back in the day when it was in its heyday of, mm. as we were talking about, the 20s, 30s, and all the royalty and whatever and they flambe this sauce into this unctuous rich really ridiculous thing and then they um, pan sear the duck breast and and your first course is something normally like a a souffle or I had a bloody lobster souffle with caviar I wish I hadn't asked you this question this could go on for some time I'm I'm feeling hungry and tired yeah and after one course I was like that is so rich you know as you know I'm not a massive eater I don't know, Mr. Hammond, and you've had a glass of champagne. Would you like some claret? Then the next course is the breasts, which they've fried and are served with some, like, um, what are the inf- uh, little potatoes that they puff up? Pom something. Yeah, I know. Do you know what, yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. A handful of those, super rich again. Uh, what are they called? Um, anyway, yeah. we'll move on. And, and with this sauce that they then pour liberally all over it which is so rich it's got like half a pat of butter in it and and a massive slug of booze and all the rest and then you have that and by then you're feeling quite billion so so for pudding you're just having a cigar alone and then they say right pudding um we're gonna serve you um then there's one more course to the duck which i've missed they do something else with the duck it's oh quite, it's the foie gras a, of course foie gras with girol well, I think this is a good meal for your for your last meal ever because they'll probably have to delay the execution by a few days. They'll probably finish you off. <laughs> and then That's you, the method of death. Yeah. So anyway, I wouldn't go to those lengths, but a good steak and a, and a glass of red and then you'd move on to your dessert and, as I said, ice cream or cheese and, a, and then you go on to your, your spirits. So are you, if you're a brandy lover, if you love your scotch, and with that, then you have a really big, bold, meaty cigar... Apartagus is a is a strong Cuban cigar, really punchy, really bold sort of thing. Late night, big. This is your coup de gras then, because uh, yeah, this is the last thing to ever I get in your mouth. There's a cigar that's relatively recently in the portfolio called an E2, Apartagus E2, and it's big. It's about so big and about that, and it is just the dogs. But you can't do anything after it. You know, it's one of them. It's a, I mean, in this case, that doesn't matter. You don't need you... it. It's a game finisher, <laughs> a life finisher. That wouldn't be a bad way to bow out, would it? What about you? What would you go for? Well, mine is... Slightly less effusive. Yeah, I'd have a a green soup with some crunchy bread and good butter for starters. Really? You can choose the cigars. Yep. Fish pie. Ooh. Um, How do you like your fish pie? Does it have egg in it? Actually, I don't mind having egg in it or not. The quality of the fish is what it has to to be. Prawns? Um, Yeah, I do like some prawns in there. Once again, if they're... 
if they're good ones. Yeah. And it has to be cooked by my deceased grandmother, oh. which will make it a bit difficult. But that she made an amazing fish pie. Well, we we well she had a house on the Isle of Wight, so we would. Gosh. She would basically get whatever was available and just seem to make the most amazing thing. It's more of a nostalgic meal than mm. whatever all the fancy stuff you no, just I said. No, I totally was. get it though. And then um, as much cheese as you can eat afterwards. And probably. then we'd, we'd pair you up with something nice to finish you off. Maybe the cheese, cheese after fish is not a usual thing, but those no. are the things I love. Yeah, my last meal. I don't. I'm not one for sort of. You've got to have this, that, the other. You have what you want, don't you? I mean, you told me the other day that you like marmite and honey on toast. Yeah. So the fact that we're still talking. <laughs> that is pretty... I've, also, I've got another fetish to tell you about. Not the one that you told me about last night. Not you that one. No, 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 no. On the podcast. That's not for uh, personal consumption, for public consumption. This is that I've got a bit of a fetish now for smelling elephant dung. <laughs> Hold on. There you go. You've been telling me about, asking me about... Yeah. Let me grab some elephant shit. There's literally some about two feet away. Well, that's quite hard to break open. It's about the size of a small football. There you go. Oh. oh my god. And it has this sort of barnyardy thing. It's got sweetness like hay, but it has this really thrilling, slightly exotic, which makes my heart go a bit. The question is are we going to smoke some? <laughs> we should put it on the fire for sure. Definitely. Well, you know when. This is very sweet smelling, isn't it? Yeah. You know what I mean? The, the interesting thing about elephants, as I mean, you can see, we're literally holding two giant pieces of elephant shit right yeah, now. Yeah. Um, you can see that they're very inefficient in their digestion. Yeah. Because, I mean, if I pull that out, that's actually, I mean, that's, what, four? That's four, four or five inches of something barky yeah. and yeah. and and strong. So so that you have all this woodiness inside. Yeah. When it's, when it's dry, this is fantastic to start a fire with. And this one's still a little bit wet. But if you... What, you'd like that first? Yeah, you know, if you've ever seen Bear Grylls holding some, you know, kindling and getting it going, this is perfect. So you you rough up the inside and chuck a match in. Amazing. If you're struggling to find something and and it will start smouldering away and get down and blow on it with some sticks over it. So probably if we just put that on the fire from last night, that would take in in a few minutes. Well, if we find, there's a dryer piece over there. That would be, yeah. Let's do it. We can start a fire with that later on, I think. We need need a match and a a few sticks. I don't think you do because that's still hot. If you put that in in those ashes. I think you'll need a flame. Do you? It needs a bit of... Luckily of you around. Plenty of options to make fire. Not an issue. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) A little bit of... um, you know, safari time for you here yeah. as well, is that when you're looking at um, elephant poo, if you're walking around here, it's very difficult to know if it's elephant poo or rhinoceros poo. Oh, really? Um, and the way you can tell what you're tracking is if you pull out some of these sticks, can you see at the end it's been cut pretty much straight? Clean, yeah. Whereas, so elephants cut all of their, you know, rough rough wood and they, they chop it directly in half. Whereas if you open up a and similar looking shit and find that it's cut at 45 degrees, you're following a rhino. Is that right? Isn't that just the way their teeth work? It's just the way that they, yeah. their teeth work, but otherwise very difficult to know which is which. That's amazing. Right, that's gone on the fire. We'll let you know when it combusts, yeah. listeners. <laughs> this is riveting stuff. What other podcast offers you live elephant turd burning? I bet there isn't one in the world. We've been looking for our niche. <laughs> We ought to do. We ought to do some videos together. That'd be hilarious. I thought we weren't going to talk about your fetishes. No, not those sorts. No. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's talk about the safari series and 
So how many tents do you have at main camp? Main camp we have six. Well, we have lots of tents, but in terms of so, bedrooms... Yeah, more about maximum capacity, let's, let's put it that way. Well, we have, we have six tents which sleep you know, in two large double beds. Yeah. Um, we can squeeze in a few small beds for, for little ones where needed. And we also have another tent which is huge, which I've yet to show you, um, for families. And this is the size, probably larger than most people's flats in London. Really? Uh, it's got three bedrooms in it, a bathroom and a living room. Wow. Um, which we recently built because we've talked about accessibility and one of the things that is really important to us is that young people can come mm. because if we're going to sustain and conserve it can't be old farty six-year-olds who've made their money who aren't going to be around in 20 years we need young people from all over the world to come and realize that protecting wilderness is something they're passionate about and so, get enthusiastic about it yeah so well, that, that's a, true because all the, everything i do i just think i i want to bring my kids here mm. so I, I totally get that so but in a normal circumstance what, you have about a dozen people in camp? Yeah, a bit more. If We, we can do about 14 people usually right. um, in the main camp. And then we've got the mobile camp, which is where we're sitting now, mm. um, which you can channel your inner bumble and, do and yeah. describe if you like. Yeah, absolutely. So as a recap, I'll stand up. So we're in this... It's almost like a sort of um, delta-type situation, but of course it's massively dry because there is no water uh, so we're able to pitch right down on what would have been the floodplain I guess yeah um, and there's a, just the most gorgeous fig tree which is the best tree for miles around because we went up on the escarpment didn't we and you, it's literally the most fabulous tree you mm. can see and under which are, are three little tents pitched with very comfortable put-me-ups and a torch and some water and that's about all you need well there you have it I hope you enjoyed that Long, rambling, but I think really quite interesting chat with me and Ed Hoff. He's an amazing guy. He's only in his early 30s and he's built all these lodges. You know, he's one of those people that make you think, what have I done with my life? You know, <laughs> he's immensely bright um, and he's just an absolute go-getter. And what he's doing is going to be something really special. Well, it already is. And I can't recommend highly enough, if you fancy a safari, get in touch with Ed. You will have the experience of a lifetime. So that's it uh, for this episode. I'm going to hopefully update you with some more bits and bobs from my travels to keep you interested. Um, a reminder again, please, 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 uh, www.aroundtheworldin80cigars.com, 80. Uh, go on to there and register, subscribe, click the button, whatever you have to do so we can keep you informed of what's happening, when and how about around the world in 80 cigars there and back again. I am off. I'm doing stuff. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I'm only just back from an incredible trip, which took me to Madrid, to Panama, to Honduras, to Nicaragua. My bag never arrived at any of those destinations <laughs> but that's just one of the stories i could tell you um and uh, next week i am off to minnesota i'm going to see black bears and moose and mom's apple pie i'm gonna 
do some really interesting things. Um, and if you register, then we will be sending you videos. We will be sending you audio. We'll be sending updates and snippets and things that you won't be able to get unless you register your email on that site. Please let your pals know what we're up to. The Indiegogo site will go live very soon, um, but you will know all about it when and how and what you can go and check out as soon as it launches once you've registered that site. Once you've put your email address in, you should get an email back from me just saying thank you and you're on board. If for some reason you don't get that, check your spam and any problems. Get in touch with me, nick at nick-hammond.com. And of course, if you need a book copy of the original Around the World in 80 Cigars, then I'd be glad to send you one with a little message from me. Just drop me a note, nick at nick-hammond.com or check out Nick Dash. Uh, oh, now, <laughs> that's a very good point. What is my other website? Let's have a look, shall we? You, you know, you really should know these things, shouldn't you? Is it Nick Hammond? Or... Yes. Hmm. Nick-Hammond.com. Is that going to work? Let's see. This is live action, folks. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's it. I did get it right in my little brain. It's nick-hammond.com. N-I-C-K hyphen H-A-M-M-O-N-D.com. Uh, you can buy an audio copy of the book there. You can fill out a little form or send me an email to get your signed copy. So there we go. We're back. I hope you're all well. I'd love to hear from you. Drop me a message on social media, on Instagram. I'm nick underscore Hammond underscore writer. Um, and love to know what you've been up to and your thoughts on the new book. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of communication between us in the coming uh, coming weeks. And I hope you're as excited as I am about this fantastic opportunity to get another independent cigar piece of literature out there. It's more stories, different stories from all over the world. Some of the crazy adventures I've been on and got myself mixed up in. Always and always accompanied by the waft of a fine cigar. Happy listening, folks. Stay safe and look after each other.